Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants, located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Welcome to episode 22 of the Debit This, Credit That podcast by Wheeler Accountants with your hosts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. We have a little bit of uh, big news in our world recently with the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It's one of the biggest pieces of tax legislation since the last major overhaul of the tax code in 1986. So in today's episode, we're going to focus on the changes that will affect individual taxpayers. And then in a future episode, we're going to go over some of the changes affecting business taxpayers. Now, before I get started, I want to take a few minutes to talk to you about an organization that's near, to dear to my, near and dear to my heart, the Damn Cancer Foundation. Other more established podcasts may submit you to advertisements at this point in the podcast, and I'm sure your finger's probably reaching slowly towards that little 15-second skip button on your phone, but bear with me for a second. The Damn Cancer Foundation, or the David Andrew Pooh Madden Foundation, is a 501c3 charitable organization dedicated to providing financial assistance to young adults diagnosed with cancer and to fund innovative cancer treatments and research. We formed the foundation in 2008 after my very good friend, David Pooh, as in Winnie the Pooh Madden, passed away from complications resulting from treatment related to osteosarcoma, which is bone cancer. Pooh and I slammed together at UC Santa Barbara and continued our friendship after college. Shortly after graduating at the age of 25, Pooh was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Now, there are a lot of charities out there that focus on cancer generally or children with cancer, and they get a lot of support and funding and for a very good reason. But I have to tell you that one of the most underserved groups out there is the young adult age group, and that's who our foundation aims to help. When you recently graduated from college and have no accumulated savings, a cancer diagnosis like what Pooh had is an incredibly devastating experience, not just physically, but financially and emotionally as well. Some people are fortunate enough to have family help and support them during this time while they tackle treatment head-on and are unable to work, but many do not. Our foundation provides financial assistance for costs not covered by insurance or otherwise, in order to make life during treatment a little less stressful. Simple things such as the cost of gas and parking for travel to and from treatments, the cost of groceries, utility bills, rent, overnight stay near the hospital, these are all things our foundation covers. Since 2009, we have provided more than 300 financial grants to young adult cancer patients. We've raised almost $1.2 million, provided grants of over $500,000 to those 300 young adults, and also funded $150,000 towards a clinical trial for an innovative, non-invasive cancer treatment at USC. Actually, it's clinical trial, not cancer treatment. Please consider supporting the foundation by making a tax-deductible donation at our website, www.damncancer.org. And please follow the foundation on social media, at damncancer on Twitter or Instagram, at dam underscore cancer, or on Facebook. One final ask. We are looking for someone to help assist on a volunteer basis with the foundation's social media. So if you know anyone that would be willing to help out, Please let us know. And now we're going to get into the meat of the podcast. Major individual changes, tax reform volume one. So Matt, you know that I don't do taxes, but I am very interested in the tax changes that are going to be affecting my personal tax returns as well as our clients' tax returns. Well, you used to do your taxes. Well, I know, but that didn't work out very well. That's why I engaged you (laughs) to do my tax return. (laughs) But yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the um, changes at that have 
Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the changes? What what effects is this going to have on income tax rates? Well, there's a lot of major changes of the new uh, tax reform, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, the, one of the biggest ones is the income tax rate changes. And uh, it's, first of all, it's not a permanent change. It's for a 10-year period, and all these are going to sunset. So kind of like those Bush tax cuts from 2003 that were implemented and then sunsetted when Obama was in office in 2013. Uh, we're, we're having a similar situation here where these are going to sunset in the future. So they're not permanent, but they are pretty big changes. Income tax rates are going to drop for most tax brackets around 2 or 3% per bracket. The ranges of the brackets are going to change a little bit as well and go up slightly. But the biggest change is that all the rates are dropping a few percent. So everyone should see their income tax rate drop a little bit. But rate's not the entire story. Obviously, there's more to it than that. Rate's only one component. Yeah, so I've heard a lot about alternative minimum tax and how that will reduce some of our deductions. Can you tell us how alternative minimum tax is affected? Yeah, AMT is a alternative minimum tax. AMT is one of those things that nobody understands except for Wheeler accountants and CPA. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's very complicated and convoluted. It's basically an entire second system that you have to follow to calculate your taxes every year. And before this tax change... It was affecting a lot of taxpayers. The original intent of AMT was to really focus on high-income taxpayers and not let them get an unfair advantage by taking too many deductions. So what AMT does is it basically looks at every single line item of income and then deduction, and it figures, does this count for regular tax? Does this count for AMT? You calculate your tax under this parallel system. You end up with a regular taxable income. You end up with an AMT taxable income. You apply it by the different rates that affect each type of tax, and then you pay the higher of the two rates. Now, the big change in the new tax package here, and they were talking about totally getting rid of it at first, and that didn't happen when it got into committee, of course. You know, once something's there, it's very unlikely to go away in the future, right? But they did raise the point at which the AMT exemption starts to phase out to $1 million of income for married filing joint taxpayers, $500,000 for single taxpayers. So... That's a big jump. It used to start phasing out at a couple hundred thousand dollars of income. And that's why a lot of taxpayers before were subject that were anywhere in the 200000 to like five or $600,000 of ordinary income range. You were highly likely to be an AMT, especially if you lived in a state like California or somewhere else where you had a lot of state income tax and property tax deduction, which was not allowed for AMT. Now I think you're going to see hardly anyone subject to AMT. But it's still there. It's still going to impact taxpayers here in Silicon Valley who have incentive stock options, and they're going to have an AMT preference item on those. They exercise and hold, and it's going to affect probably some higher income taxpayers still. But with some of the changes on deductions, I think it's going to be we're going to see far less of the AMT, and that's that's good news for a lot of taxpayers out there. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the deductions? I know that they're the big thing was the state and local tax being reduced to, to $10,000 a year, which is a big change for us in California that pay high property taxes and high state tax. Right. I mean, that was obviously the big news item out there was the, the state and local tax deduction going away. You saw us out there talking to our clients on social media and through news blasts and directly about you know prepaying state and local income taxes before the end of the year. Which I did. Good, because you're my client. <laughs> property taxes. 
you know, paying all those things. You saw long lines at county assessor's offices. I'm sure they're flush with cash right now from all those prepayments, and they're going to be hurting, of course, in the spring when they don't come through as normal, unless they plan. I hope they do. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the state and local income tax deduction now is capped at $10,000. So that's a combined or a combination of aggregate state income tax, property taxes on your principal residence, or on any like second, third, fourth, fifth residences, right, that are used personally. That's a key component there. DMV fees fall into this category. A lot of people probably don't realize that, but DMV fees are personal property taxes, and those are going to be included in the, the cap there. And so that's going to limit the deduction for a lot of people. Now, the interesting thing, I think, is that this, this is going to impact high-income taxpayers a lot who are not an AMT because they could normally deduct all of the state income and property tax, and they weren't having an AMT problem because they were actually paying the higher ordinary regular tax rate. They weren't an AMT. They're going to get hurt by this a little bit. The lowering of the, the top bracket from 39.6% to 37% is going to help a little bit there, but they're still going to feel the bite on, on this one. But people that were in AMT before, people that were probably in the couple hundred thousand to like, you know, half million income range or so that were found themselves in AMT in California because they had, you know, property tax of $15,000 and state income tax of like 15, 20, 25, well, I guess more than that, probably like 20 or $30,000. They're only going to get to deduct $10,000 now, but they weren't getting a whole lot of benefit before because they were in AMT and the state income tax and the property tax isn't allowed for AMT. So now I think some people may actually be better off getting $10,000 where they know they don't have an AMT problem and they get to deduct the full amount rather than have some sort of arbitrary unlimited amount, but it's not actually useful anyway. You follow me? So that's going to be an interesting thing, I think, about the state and local income tax deduction being capped. And we're going to see how that ends up. Yeah, so it sounds like if, if uh, our clients were in AMT and they were in a couple hundred thousand dollar income bracket, that this could actually be a really good change for them. It may. Okay. You know, combined with everything else. Um, but some of the stuff we're not going to care as much about anymore. DMV fees, I mean, who cares? You're going to hit $10,000 now. That's because I'm always searching for my DMV fees and I've never <laughs> figured it out. So that's great. So we've heard a lot about mortgages being capped at $750,000. And mm -hmm. being here in California, uh, a lot of our mortgages tend to be more than $750,000. Can you can you enlighten us on, on what this means for somebody that maybe has an $850,000 mortgage right now? Yeah, there's a so that was a pretty big change also. You know, the original version of the bill had it down to like 500,000 and the and the Senate version had like a million and they ended up at the 750 as a compromise, basically, in the committee. One key component here, remember, is if you had a mortgage in place before the act was passed, I actually think before the end of the year, you're grandfathered into the, the old 1.1 or the $1 million limitation. So you don't actually don't have an issue if your mortgage was set before then. Before 12-31-17. Yeah, and I need to check on the exact date, so don't quote us on this one here, but we'll we'll post it on our, our website. But um, you know, the, the million dollar limitation does apply to before the tax act was passed, basically. Even if you refinance it later, as long as the original mortgage was taken out before then, your grandfather then and you're okay there. Now, if you have a new mortgage starting in 2018, just to keep it simple, right? You are going to be limited to deducting the interest on a mortgage of $750,000. So that means if you get a mortgage of a million dollars now, three-fourths of the mortgage interest you pay is going to be deductible every year, and one-fourth is going to be non-deductible personal interest. So if you're looking to buy a home, uh, you're going to need to factor this into your equation here. You're going to need to 
you know, determine what your after-tax cash flow is going to be with the write-off on the mortgage payment, you're going to have some limitation there. So it's going to impact you. And unfortunately, in our area, with the average home price in San Jose is, you know, over a million dollars, chances are pretty good you may have a mortgage over the limit and you're going to be subject to this limitation. Another change they did is there used to be an extra $100,000 you could deduct on your mortgage or like on a line of credit for no matter what it was used for, for regular tax purposes. So it's like a $1.1 million limitation if you had an original mortgage to buy a house more than that, or you had your regular mortgage plus 100 k of an extra like line of credit debt that you could have spent on like anything and deducted. That extra 100 k item goes away now. It wasn't allowed for AMT before, but now it's not allowed for regular tax or AMT. So there's no longer any extra line of credit thing where you can use that to pay off like some other debt, you know, uh, before we used to have strategies like you would, if you had credit card debt, you could take out a line of credit on your house and pay off the credit card debt and convert non-deductible personal interest to deductible interest. That one goes away. That strategy is going to go away. Yeah. And the people that were at the 1.1 million limitation before, even if you're grandfathered in, it's now 1 million. So we're going to have to update our schedules there for tracking how much is deductible, not deductible and that kind of stuff. Okay. So revised interest tracing schedules there. Right. Um, what about miscellaneous itemized deductions? Yeah, so the Tax uh, Act got rid of most miscellaneous itemized deductions, basically the ones that are subject to the 2% floor of AGI. Uh, these are traditionally things like hour fees, uh, investment advisory fees, or just general investment fees, unreimbursed business expenses for employees. These are now no longer allowed at all. Before, they were not allowed for AMT, but they were allowed for regular tax. So you had a lot of taxpayers that weren't getting much benefit anyway. So this may not be that big of a change. But this probably is going to impact a lot of people that have little lower income levels where they were below the AMT threshold and they were deducting some of this stuff, especially people like outside salespeople that had like vehicle expenses and stuff like mileage, that kind of thing, and their employee. They're going to lose out on that deduction. That's going to be kind of a bummer. Now, our fees are non-deductible as miscellaneous itemized deductions now, accounting fees, right, tax prep fees. But if you have a business or a rental and you have a good CPA, like Wheeler Accountants or others, we actually usually allocate a portion of our fee directly against the business or the Schedule E rentals or the Schedule F or wherever it is. So you do get some benefit there, and that's not going to change. Yeah, so if you still have – if you're sole proprietor or if you have rentals or whatever, we're going to try and allocate as much of our fee as possible over there so you are deducting it. And the portion that is considered personal, you're going to lose out on that part. But for most people, we are already deducting – a good portion of it against other ones anyway, because it was more advantageous to begin with. That makes sense. Yes, we have those there. Uh, Investment advisory fees, that one's going to be kind of a bummer. If you have large uh, managed brokerage accounts and that kind of thing, you're not going to get to deduct those fees anymore. I don't know of any workarounds yet. I've had some clients ask, you know, can they like add it to basis on the stocks or that kind of stuff? Uh, And the answer is no for that kind of stuff right now. Uh, maybe we'll go see some advisors going back to more of like a commission based on trades model or something where that is deducted against the sale. I don't really know. We'll have to get Scott from Better Wealth on the podcast to, to ask him what they're what they're doing about that, if anything. Absolutely. Um, the, the third one was the unreimbursed business expenses. That one's gone too now. You know, if you're an employee and you pay for things out of pocket and you don't get reimbursed, you can't deduct those anymore. That was already kind of a strict rule. You had to have an employment agreement where there was like no reimbursement allowed for the items. Like if you forgot to get reimbursed, but your company normally reimburses you for it, you weren't allowed to deduct it anyway. Okay. So it has to be like specifically, you have to pay for it yourself on your own dime, then you can deduct it. But now it's going away entirely. Uh, my suggestion would be go back to your employer. If you have a lot of these, 
you got to renegotiate, right? How much are you getting paid? Because they should be taking the deduction on that because they can still sure they can as a business, but you can't. Or perhaps you maybe qualify as an independent contractor and you can now be self-employed, in which case you can deduct it. But as oh, a slippery slope there. Slippery slope. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But, you know, this is going to put a lot of pressure, I think, towards the independent contractor side and the whole, like, gig economy thing that's going on. And I think you're going to see people want to be self-employed based on this and the new lower tax rate on pass-throughs, including sole proprietors and everything. There's going to be a lot of push towards that. And we're just going to see how it kind of plays out over the next few years, whether people actually move towards that or not. I'm sure the state employment development department and others are going to be actively looking at that and trying to get, you know, make sure you're qualified as a, as a W-2 employee and not a contractor and yeah, slippery stuff. We offer no legal advice on that. You know, we can provide some tax analysis a little bit, but you should definitely consult an employment attorney if you got questions there. Yeah, very interesting. I know that's been a very hot topic. And one thing that I thought was very strange that we would were required to, in the Affordable Care Act, we were required to report in our tax returns uh, the status of our health care. Is that still going to be a requirement going forward? It's a good question. What, what's going away now is the individual mandate or the penalty for not having health insurance. Now, I, okay. I do not know how that's all going to play out, how it interacts with everything else in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, but the component about the penalty for not having insurance is going away. The the extra 3.8% net investment tax, though, is still here. So that's a part of the Affordable Care Act, right? Okay. There's a 0.9% tax called the hospital insurance tax on wages and earnings over like a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's still here. So a lot of those things are still here. They didn't repeal the Affordable Care Act, obviously. They just repealed this one component about the penalty or the additional tax on not having coverage. So... We'll see how that plays out. But yeah, starting in 2018, there's no penalty for not having health insurance anymore. Okay. So uh, one program that's very near and dear to my heart is a 529 account since I have two, <laughs> uh, two kids uh, working their way towards college. Any changes for the 529 accounts? Yes. And this is one that was also exciting for me is now having three kids and <laughs> young, you young have, ones. You have a little more time to save. <laughs> or two and uh, brand new, two months. So yeah, now before a 529 plan was a kind of like an IRA for education is how I would describe it, right? So you put money into this special account where you can save for future higher education, college basically. And if you, and the earnings can accrue inside the account, uh, tax deferred, there's no tax currently paid on the earnings inside the account. And if you end up withdrawing the earnings for actual use for college, for education expenses or some other ones, also related to college, you didn't pay any tax in the earnings. So it ended up being kind of like almost like a rough IRA for college, right? Well, now they've broadened up and opened the 529 plan a little bit, where now you can withdraw up to $10,000 a year for elementary and middle and high school. Now I was trying to look specifically on when it actually starts, and I couldn't find it yet because my daughter's going to be in a pre-K class next year. I was going to try and find out if I could actually start taking money out for that or not. I don't know. I couldn't find the answer yet. So we may need to get clarification from the IRS on when specifically it starts. But it is supposed to be allowed for public, private, and religious education. I believe there's something in there on homeschooling also, where some expenses are allowed for homeschooling. I may have read it wrong. I don't know. I'll have to double-check that part. But um, yeah, $10,000 a year now for those um, those lower grades. So you may want to fund a little more into the 529 plans than you were previously, right? If you can actually use it for those for those purposes. Now I was talking with Scott of Better Wealth uh, yesterday about this when he came into my office, actually, and he was 
thinking it wasn't that big of a change because you kind of lose the benefit of the, the long-term earnings deferral for college. I can see his point. Maybe we can debate that also with him. But um, Yeah, it sounds like we have some good topics to bring Scott in on. Yeah, I think it's still a good thing, though, where I think that you know you can now take $10,000 out per year. Uh, what I'm kind of looking at is like maybe I'll start funding for the you know elementary and middle school a couple of years early, get a head start on earnings in there, and then be able to use it for – Education. I think stocks coming from like more an investment perspective, where you don't want to invest too aggressively if you have a market downturn, right? Like we're at all-time yeah, highs right now, and you know, stock market can't go down. Of course, <laughs> you know, not That's probably the nail in the coffin right there. But yeah, um, not good advice. Yeah. So you want to invest probably more conservatively if you're going to have use the money sooner or split it up a little bit and how you're investing in there. Again, that's more of a Scott question, but um, yeah, definitely a cool new provision in the the code. And, you know, during the election, there was a lot said about carried interest. Can you uh, let us know what that means to us now? Yeah, well, it doesn't mean a lot to most people, but uh, <laughs> carried interest um, is a hot button topic, you know, one thing before the election. That never revolves around the venture capital folks and the hedge fund managers, where they basically, most of them, the way it works is they get paid a regular management fee, a couple percent of the assets and the fund they're managing. That's ordinary income. That's pretty well established. But they usually had a 20% profit for performance allocation if the fund made money. And that would basically be comprised of the underlying character of gain inside the fund. So if the, gain, if the gains in the fund are mostly long-term capital gains, they would carve out their 20% of the earnings there. And, re, and that earnings to them would be long-term capital gains. Even though what they're basically doing is providing a service is what people were arguing. And so therefore, it should be ordinary income and not long-term gains. I don't know if I entirely agree with the logic there. You know, they are they are also co-investing a lot of times in the fund as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not all just like a service uh, per se. And that's, I think, what the management fee covers, really. But, uh, you know, all the major candidates before the election were against the carried interest, quote, loophole, and they were going to close it. Well, we heard very little about carried interest during the entire tax reform thing. All of a sudden, people seem to forget about it. They did add one little change now. Or basically, if you've been in the fund for three years or uh, less than three years and the, the underlying holdings in the fund were held for less than three years, it's going to be considered short-term gain instead oh, of a yeah. long-term gain when it's over a year. So any investments the fund has that are between like one year and three years old to liquidate, it's going to be like re- reclassed, I guess, to the VCs as a short-term gain instead of a long-term gain. But I also read the average holding period for most investments in the VC funds is like four plus years. So it may not even impact them at all. They're just going to change their strategy and liquidation a little bit, I'm sure, right. right? And then they're trying to hit that five-year mark for the for the qualified small business stock exclusion anyway. A lot of times, I mean, well, they're going to cash out when they cash out, but you know, that's also a, a, a key target to look for there. So I don't know how much it's actually going to change for most most of VCs and that kind of stuff, but it was an interesting thing that came up barely in the tax reform. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for clarifying that. One thing that I did hear you talking about was a newer, a new lower pass-through rate. Can you explain what that would mean? Yeah, we plan on covering most of this in our next podcast on their business changes because it's interrelated to that, really. But um, you know, with the corporate tax rate dropping from thirty-five percent to twenty-one percent, Congress wanted to put in an offsetting change for people that are organized, uh, you know, not in a traditional C corporation for their business. Those are normally what are called pass-through entities, partnerships, S-corporations, and they even classify a sole proprietorship 
Oh, okay. the, the, the idea the idea is your business isn't paying any taxes. You personally are paying the taxes. The, the income is passing through to you individually, right? Okay. Pastures are highly popular with small businesses because they're more tax efficient than the C corporation or they have been in the past, right? So this new pass-through deduction will allow a, a good amount of pass-through holders to get this like basically 20% off the top deduction on their income. It, I, I read it lowers your effective rate to somewhere around like 27% the top rag or something. I don't know enough about the specifics yet because it's all brand new. We haven't had time to digest it yet, but we are going to cover that in our next topic. I know it's a big topic for a lot of our self-employed and business clients, and we're absolutely going to address it. So we'll hit so that stay one. Stay tuned. Hit that one in the next podcast. Okay, looking forward to that one. All right, so I think that's it on the tax reform uh, questions we have now. So now what we'd like to get into is the, the Q&A. We, we, each episode now we're going to try and do a little bit of like listener, you know, client Q&A. We get a lot of questions here at the firm. And so we thought it'd be beneficial, like the old adage goes, if someone has a question or if you have a question, someone else probably has it too, right? So don't be afraid to speak up. So we're going to go ahead and go through some of the questions here and give a few answers as to what our clients are and listeners are asking. Yeah, absolutely. I have a couple of great questions that we've printed out. And uh, so I'll just go ahead and read the question. And then uh, Matt, you can provide your response. Hey, Wheeler, Merry Belated Christmas and Happy New Year. I have another question for you, please. Here's the situation. I can no longer live here in Santa Clara, and I'm considering selling my condo. The mortgage is currently $249,000. It's a seller's market these days, as you might know. A recent sale in my complex went for $950,000. I may not need to fix my place up at all since I hear that there are a few places in the area that are for sale under a hundred. Can you imagine there's only like less oh. than a hundred in inventory? It's <laughs> wild. Yeah. So if I sell my place for eight hundred and forty nine thousand, that would give me six hundred thousand after sale complete. This leads me to a question on the tax laws in this area. I have heard that taxes on my first time sale if you're older than sixty five are zero. Is that right? When my mom died, she left my sister and me half owners of the house in Long Beach. I transferred title to her in return for about $129,000. Would this transaction disqualify me for taxes on the sale of my condo? Would I have to pay capital gains on the $600,000? The new place in Clovis is around $325,000. I'm considering paying cash from the condo sale. Is there an amount that would be required to pay from the condo sale in order to qualify for the tax exemption? Are there other considerations that I need to consider? Alternative minimum tax for one. I hope I haven't confused you by my description of the situation. Best regards and happy new year. So there's a lot, there's a lot in this question here and it's pretty Pretty common. Uh, a few things. One, there was a older tax law which has been gone now since like 1996, I think, is the year. So I was 15 years old, and uh, you used to be able to roll over your gain from the sale of your house into like the next house, kind of like a 1031 exchange, but for primary residents. That's been gone now for over 20 years. But a lot of people still have that law in their head as like the way it works because they probably haven't sold their house since that law was in effect, right? So uh, that one's gone. The second one that's going on here that I noticed is that the client's asking about paying tax on the $600,000, which is the net amount they're going to get of proceeds after paying off the mortgage. It's another common thing where when you calculate gain on the sale of a residence, 
the mortgage is completely irrelevant, basically. So your gain on the sale of a residence is the sales price minus commissions and then minus your adjusted basis, which is your cost of buying the property plus any major improvements you've done. That's your gain. The mortgage doesn't matter. So whether you finance something or whether you paid cash in the past, it's, it's irrelevant for tax purposes on the gain. The gain is just how much you sold it for minus how much you bought it for in its most basic terms, right? So they didn't say how much they bought it for here, but my guess is it's probably around high 200s if the mortgage is 249 or maybe 300,000. It could be actually could be more because I paid it off over time, right? So maybe it's like $350,000 they bought it for and the recent sales for 950. So say the gain is actually 600 just by happenstance because the, the mortgage thing. Yeah, right so we'll buy it. yeah. So the rule is still that you get $500,000 tax-free of gain if you're married or a quarter million dollars if you're single, as long as you've lived in and own the residence two out of the last five years. There are a few adjustments related to like if you rented the property for a period of time or that kind of stuff or used it as a home office or any of those kind of things. But in general, that's the rule. So the client may owe tax on like 100000 or so in that scenario. If they're married, I don't, I don't know. Or they may owe tax on a couple hundred thousand if they're single. It's not going to be the full amount. So that, that 500000 rule replaces the old rollover rule, right? The 500000 slash quarter million rule. And, and that's the way it works now for primary residences. Now, I tell a lot of clients that if you have a really, really expensive home here in the area and you bought it for almost nothing, like, you know, 40, 50 years ago, especially when the clients are older, you may want to consider not selling the house, actually, because the gain is so big. And if you want to move out of the area, you can move out of the area and, and go somewhere else and just rent the house out. Because when the first spouse passes away, there's actually a reset in the income tax basis on the property, the first debt. And so the beneficiaries then can... Uh, sell the house tax-free. Or if you're married and the first spouse passes away, you could turn around and sell the house right after the first debt and pay no income tax just by basically waiting and holding on. So as you get older and the gain gets bigger, there's less of a good reason to sell and more reason to hang on. And that may be part of why the inventory is so low as well around here. You know, um, Prop 13 also, I think, has a, something to do with it. But that's a strategy to think about. And the last thing the client asked about was buying a new residence. Again, that has no bearing on the gain on the sale residence at all. Uh, the only thing that does apply there that you want to think about is if you're over 55 years old, a lot of counties you can transfer your property tax basis one time from Santa Clara County to like a reciprocating county. You got to check the assessor's website. But if you have a really low property tax base and you want to transfer that to a new residence, like one time when you're leaving the area to retire or whatever, you want to uh, investigate that. So that that could apply. You have to, you have to buy down. You have to buy a, a low, lesser value residence. The transfer, and you, like I said, you can do it one time over age 55, but that's not a thing to consider when you're buying the new property. So what I'm hearing is there is a lot of considerations when you're going to think about selling a property, and it sounds like uh, they should be talking to you before oh, yeah, I mean, they sell a property. Any decision, please just ask us first, right? You don't want to go ahead and go charge through with something under the wrong assumptions, right? A quick phone call could clear up you know, a bunch of this, five-minute phone call, right? So please, please reach out, email or call. Absolutely. Hey, Matt, I have another question. Is it still true under the new tax laws that the short-term gain will offset the carryover capital loss? I'm asking because I need to pay my son's college tuition. I can sell either stock with long-term gains or short-term gains. If the short-term gains offset the carryover of the capital loss, then it seems preferable to sell the stock with short-term gains. Am I right? Sounds like he probably should have started with a 529 account, but should have. Yeah, uh, he is right. 
So um, you, you want to sell the short-term gains first because then you're saving the long-term gains for later. The way the, the netting rules work is you can offset short or long-term gains against short or long-term losses. You first do short-term gains against short-term losses and then long-term gains against long-term losses. And then if you have a gain in one and a loss in the other, you can net those together first. And then any gain above and beyond that you pay tax on or any loss above and beyond that carries forward. So a lot of times it doesn't really matter that much, but you may as well sell the short-term gains, all things being equal, to use those against your carry-forward loss rather than, quote, wasting a long-term gain against that. Because you'd rather pay the tax on the long-term gain in the future, not not on the short-term gain. But yeah, it's it's not that big of a a deal. If you have net losses, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, I would sell the short-term one in this situation. Not not a lot of losses this year. No, no one no one has losses. I have a, another question about rental income. If I have a tenant who paid me rent for a residential property, do I need to file this form? I have never done one before, so I assume no. Please let me know. There was a question about 1099s and filing 1099s. It's another common one. I mean, 1099s are like, we hate 1099s. <laughs> yeah, we do hate 1099s. Um, we're in the middle of them right now. Yeah, they're due January 31st. Um, so 1099, first of all, if you receive income, you don't need to file 1099. So you can exclude yourself right off the bat there. Usually the person paying you the income may or may not have to file 1099. So that's a simple one to start with. Two, if you're paying someone for services over $600 in your trader business, then you must file 1099. And that's the key phrase is in your trader business. So if you're a sole proprietor and you have like a consulting practice or something and you pay somebody to help out, like build a website, right? Or do like some sort of outside service for you. If you pay them over 600 bucks for the service, it's supposed to 1099 then. But if you have a rental property and you have a gardener, you pay more than 600 bucks, you don't have to issue 99 to that person because a rental property is not considered a trader business. And the line's a little gray there because if you have like all rental property that's your full-time job and it's all you do, you may be bordering on the trader business categorization. You should be filing 1099s to be safe. There's no, there's not much downside. It doesn't hurt to file, you know, just in case. You get penalized if you don't file, but if you file or you don't have to, there's no penalty, right? So you can always err inside of being safe. But if you're, a, you know, one or two properties landlord, you don't need to file 1099s for your gardener or house cleaner or whatever. Also, if you're in your, you know, personal residence, just at home, if you have a house cleaner or a gardener or whatever, you don't need to file 1099 for them because you're not in a trader business. It's just a personal expense of yours. Basically, you're not taking yeah. active action. No 1099s required. So we get this question a lot, especially now, so I thought we would cover it here today. The key component there is, are you in a trader business? And most of the time, you're not. If you are in a trader business, then yes, you probably need to file, and there's specific rules, and you should definitely ask us. And we can prepare them for you. You can prepare them yourself. We have a whole... Uh, worksheet he sends you, but you know, trader business, the key key phrase there. Makes sense. I have one final question. Hey Wheeler, it's an IRA question. If I make a $6,500 contribution to my E-Trade rollover IRA, can I also contribute another $6,500 for my wife, even though her name isn't on the account? Uh, yes, you can contribute for your wife, assuming you have enough earned income to do so, but she has to have her own IRA. So it's a, called an individual retirement account, not a joint retirement account for that reason, right? So each person has their own IRA account. You would have to open a new one for your wife, and you could then deposit the money into there for her. She doesn't need to have any earnings. You know, Only one spouse needs to have earnings to do the IRA. 
and you have to have enough combined earnings for the two contributions to be able to qualify. And, and that's earned income, so not like extra dividends, not Social Security, and all that kind of stuff, but you know, W-2 income, self-employment income, that kind of stuff. Okay. But yeah, you have to do a separate account for your spouse. Okay, great. Well, I have learned a lot today, and uh, I'm not even a question. Sure. So we have one more question. Are you aware of installment sale coupled with a monetized loan for both investment and primary homes? Is this legitimate? Any thoughts? This was a new one for me that we had got recently, so I thought we'd cover. I had not heard of it before. What basically is happening is when you sell a property on an installment basis where you carry back the note as the seller and you act as the bank or the mortgage holder, you can defer your gain recognized on the sale until you receive principal payments on the loan. So you spread it over time. So you get like a down payment on the property and you have some gain related to that, but you don't pay tax on the entire gain on the sale because you haven't got all the money yet. You're the mortgage holder and you recognize the income over time. You have to charge interest. Right, have to be a, a fair market interest rate in order to, you know, can't be a below interest rate loan. There's other rules around that. So people will do this sometimes to kind of spread out the game, defer the game over time. You're taking a risk because you're the mortgage holder now. So if the person defaults or whatever, you're gonna have to foreclose on your property again, which is kind of like a legal pain and everything. You know, yes. my grandpa went through that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't want to have to do that, but it can be advantageous to defer the gain on something. Now, what this new, you know investment product or whatever you want to call it is that I read about the, the promoters were talking about is basically they will come in, they will loan you the full sales proceeds amount. And it's kind of like it, there's, there must be some sort of security or backing by like your note that you're holding with the, with the buyer. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to get totally screwed. They can't secure it by the property because you don't own the property anymore. The buyer owns the property now. Basically, they loan you the entire amount. So you have access to all the funds now, but you don't pay tax on the gain. Sounds great, right? Well, you know, the cynic in me, the accountant, <laughs> is always questioning, right? Is like, okay, you know, who benefits? Whatever the, you know. Sure. There whatever the, the old, um, I was going to say, like, you know, the Latin phrases, right? Who benefits, right? So, um, you know, the, the, the promoter here is probably charging a really high interest rate on that loan to you in order to make this happen, right? So yeah, they're not they're not offering it out of goodness of that option. Yeah. So you're you're eating into your return. The IRS, I guess, has ruled that it doesn't specifically violate any rules. There's like judicial doctrines like the step transaction doctrine where if you do like a couple legal steps that all conform with the law but combined look at that together that looks like you're kind of evading taxes, they can invoke this doctrine. They say that won't apply. So there's no no issue there. I still think there could be some sort of like constructive receipt type problem where if you constructively have receipt of all the funds, you may be considered taxed on it. There's a rule around that. But it looks like it does work. I think you're going to have high fees. And sure. they're probably going to make a lot of money off you. And you're, you're going to eat into your return significantly. But, you know, maybe if you need to cash really bad, you're going to like roll into the next like development thing or something. It, it could work. It just sounds risky to me. And, you know, I don't, I don't know about it. But that was a new one that came up, kind of interesting. So I thought we'd be very interesting. Thanks for sharing. That's all for today's episode of Debit This, Credit That podcast. As always, if you have a question, you can contact your Wheeler Accountants Prepare or submit a question online at our website in the Ask Wheeler section at the bottom of our page. Please remember to follow us on social media for regular updates at Wheeler CPAs and on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening as we help you solve for accounting issues.